This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Guardian reporter Luke-Enrique Gomez talks about the many proposed and controversial changes to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Luke explains his exclusive report detailing how the proposed independent assessments for the NDIS would save the federal budget $700 million and lead to smaller funding packages on average for people with a disability. Then, Barrister Richard Beasley SC joined me to discuss why he's angry. Then, Barrister Richard Beasley SC joined me to discuss why he's angry about the Murray-Darling Basin. Richard's new book is called Dead in the Water, a very angry book about our greatest environmental catastrophe, the death of the Murray-Darling Basin. Then, finally, historian Professor Michelle Arrow from Macquarie University joined me to talk about the many archival treasures on the brink of destruction due to chronic funding cuts to the budget of the National Archives of Australia. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to welcome back onto the show uh, a contributor to the program who really needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. His name is Luke Enriquez Gomes. He does really brilliant and literally award-winning reporting on welfare and inequality uh, for The Guardian Australia. And Luke joins us often to talk about things relating to JobSeeker, which is the unemployment payment, also um, disability and disability support pension, as well as the National Disability Insurance Scheme and other related issues, which um, certainly people who have a low income in Australia and are in many cases living in poverty struggle with every day, also including um, rents and really the difficulty in finding affordable housing, which is another thing that Luke has recently been reporting on. So I welcome Luke now. Thank you so much for joining me again. And uh, how are you doing, Luke? I'm going very well, Annie. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah. Surprisingly cheaper, (laughs) given the content we're about to get into. Yes. Um, Maybe I won't be at the end. Um, But it's something that at least uh, we're getting some more information about. And in that sense, it shows the value of um, the thing like an upper house, a Senate house of review, where we do see um, some of these policies put under really kind of fierce examination. And it's become harder and harder to actually do that, uh, tragically, because um, certainly departments have become more adept at having things taken on notice and they're not really providing any information or not particularly useful information in some cases to the questions that senators put to them. Um, But I do think it's quite relevant to the conversation we're about to have um, about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, But before we get into that, I just wanted to, I guess, have a little bit of a reflection on the week in politics, because there have been a couple of things, some major kind of developments that have happened. Um, I'm thinking in particular, the thing that's been making the most headlines and somehow has united Andrew Bolt with a number of progressive people (laughs) is the the, uh, ban on travellers, Australian citizens travelling from India, where the coronavirus is currently absolutely out of control. It's actually a catastrophe over there. Um, And not 
basically preventing Australians from coming back into Australia to do their two-week mandatory hotel quarantine. Uh, what are your reflections on this startling development? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's uh, it's pretty awful, to be honest, right? I mean, I think you can sort of speak about it openly. I, I don't... I don't um, I mean, the whole thing was the way that it, it, it was announced. I mean, on a Friday night at midnight, Greg Hunt puts out a press release saying, you know, people who come back, well, I mean, what it basically said was people who who come back to Australia who've been in India, you know, you could go to jail. Uh, I mean, it's pretty outrageous. And, and the Prime Minister then this morning was saying, oh, actually, you know, it's pretty unlikely that that will ever happen. So, well, I guess at the point that the opposition has been making, well, then... <laughs> Well then, why have you announced it, and why are you doing it? And I, I heard some, um, I heard some um, government uh, ministers sort of trying to defend it yesterday. And you know, Alan Tudge was was making the point about the borders being closed um, to China at the start of the pandemic, and and um, and also you know to PNG more recently. But they've invoked a different um, law in this case um, in terms of the India um, ban, and 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 that's this is the law that allows the government to say yes, we we will jail you. Um, you know, you've got. I mean, it, it sort of makes you question what citizenship is really worth right like it's mm. supposed to be this sacred thing um and we can have a d discussion about i don't know perhaps the you know whether or not um that is always a good thing that the way that people who are citizens are prioritized um but that is supposed to be the case and so uh you you have to wonder well if that is the case and people have you know in, in people in the case of people from india have um given up their Indian citizenship because India doesn't allow dual citizens. So people have, you know, gone through all the steps that are required to become Australian citizens and then, in, you know, they're in a crisis and the government says not only will we stop the flights from people trying to escape this crisis, but if you try and come here through another country, we'll put you in jail. I mean, it's, um, it's pretty extraordinary, I think. It is, yeah. And it's not a small number of Australians who have indicated that they want to come back from India. It's about 9,000 people, mm. a number of whom have underlying health conditions or are of an age where coronavirus would affect them substantially or could cause death. And um, we are seeing over there the the fact that really oxygen is unavailable and in some cases being uh, reportedly removed from uh, by government from certain hospitals, causing the deaths of people in those hospitals. And we've seen like media releases from the hospitals saying so many people have just died uh, because we ran out of oxygen and mm. have pointed the finger at the Indian government. So even something as basic as once you've gotten to such a severe point, a critically ill point, that you can't even get oxygen, I mean, this is a, a health system that basically isn't standing up, not even close, for its own citizens. So it's kind of ridiculous to expect that India would have to also look after additional people given the crazy number of deaths that are happening. Well, that's right. I mean, I guess... Um you know, it, 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 we should be trying to give India as much support uh, and assistance as possible, and I'm not sure that um, telling our own citizens, uh, no, you must stay there, and, and if you get sick, you must engage the Indian health system is really a, a useful thing to do at this point in time. Mm. Some people have pointed to 
uh, past governments evacuating their citizens, like um, thinking of the Howard government, I think, when it was um, the war in Lebanon was starting out. Um, there's been a number of examples, even um, sending repatriation flights to China at the start of um, this pandemic. Yes. Yes. Do you think that that is something that is really realistic for the federal government right now? Well, I mean, I don't have an insight into the sort of logistical, uh, you know, challenge the challenges that might be um, required in, in this particular case, so I can't really answer directly, but I think that the government has sort of made a decision that, um, you know, it's, I think, from pressure from Mark McGowan, basically, has just decided, well, we've just, we don't want any pressure on the quarantine system, and so... Uh, they're not interested in anything else other than limiting the um, amount of pressure on that system uh, as much as possible. And so, I mean, it kind of, it, it just seems very, um, it's, it's sort of, it's easy, you've got to look back, I think, and sort of take stock of where we are now and the way we look at the hotel quarantine system apparently, which supposedly now we everyone's just decided, no, you it's it's impossible and you, you can't do it properly. There are always going to be leaks. And I mean, you know, as a Melbourneian, I remember only only six months ago uh, or eight months ago, we, you know, we had a hotel, we had an inquiry into the fact that there were leaks from the hotel quarantine system, and it was considered that it was this absolute, um, in, you know, complete maladministration from the government. Uh, and I think six months later, everyone goes, well. You know, hotel quarantine in the current setup is basically impossible. So we can't allow our own citizens to come come back. We're in the, we're in we're in a crisis. It's um, mm. I don't know. It's um, it's a little bit bizarre. And I guess the other factor is, of course, that the the federal government kind of has, um, you know, left it to the states to do these um to to do the quarantine um systems, and um certainly some states have you know, led by Western Australia have said, well, you know, we we just want to limit the, the risk as much as possible. Um, but, you know, leaving aside the merits of the first decision to sort of stop flights from India um, and, you know, there's certainly the reality of that is that it also means that it would have put Australians in, in serious jeopardy as well. This most recent decision sort of has a, kind of more, um, uh, you know, it, it appears to have a bit of a more a nasty edge to it really because it wasn't just about um, um, limiting um, people coming back and limiting the flights, which we've seen occur from other countries, but it also added this new element of, oh, and if you do try and come here, we're going to put you in jail, which, you know, as I said before, in terms of a way to treat your own citizens is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it seems like we have reached a new low in the situation. Um, and and I think it has shocked quite a lot of people, including some um, constitutional law experts as well. So, um, yeah, it is concerning for a number of reasons and also for the reason that uh, Andrew Bolt, among so many others, yes, has pointed Matt, out. Matt Canavan as well. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there you go. Um, Amazing. Indeed. Yeah. Um, now, Luke, let's talk about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mm -hmm. So uh, colloquially or shortly um, by acronym termed the NDIS, this is a scheme which uh, we have discussed in the past and 
it is really something that I know so many people who are on the NDIS really deeply value and appreciate and um, feel that it has changed their lives and made things a lot easier for them and in many cases helped to improve their functionality and to help them engage in the activities that they want to do um, on an everyday basis. And a lot of you know, equipment and um, changing the fit out of your house is a very expensive thing to go through if you certainly don't have the funds and, you know, um, perhaps employment is limited um, in that sense. So this is is a scheme that really does have quite um, a great significance, not just in a practical sense, but also in a political sense uh, for the Labor Party, because as we know, this was something that uh, Julia Gillard and Bill Shorten really um, felt very closely um, aligned to and passionate about. So it's something that uh, has this dual element to it, this kind of political uh, element and also this clear practical element. Um, and so when we talk about changing the NDIS and improving it, so to speak, um, this is when things can become a bit contentious, can't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's um, I, Bill Shorten, uh, who's now Labor's um, NDIS uh, spokesman, was giving a press um, a, uh, a speech at the press club last week, and he sort of made the point that you know, in terms of big ideas in Australian politics and big, I guess, social uh, policy reforms. I mean, the NDIS is kind of the big one of the last two decades, really. Like, it, it, it is enormous um, and life-changing and, um, I guess, for people who, um, I suppose, support the, you know, progressive side of politics, that's the sort of things, um, certainly what Bill Shorten was saying, is the sort of thing that you sort of expect or hope that a, a Labor government would do. Um, and I suppose the uh, flip side to that would be that... Um, you know, although the coalition has, uh, you know, it did support the introduction of the NDIS and um, after it was um, a sort of a, established at the start, Labor lost government. So it has been the coalition that has basically been um, uh, administering it and setting it up until it got to, you know, it took about five years, five or six years to get to the full scheme where all the states um, were involved and it was running up and running everywhere. Um but you're right. It is. It does become contentious, and I mean, I think the the the, the fact is that um, that's because it, um, you know, it's it's about twenty two billion. It's a twenty two billion dollar a year scheme, and so you kind of have this debate that um, is kind of has always existed, but seems to be really uh, sort of intensifying now about you know, can we afford this? big social program um, and I guess we can get into the ins and outs of that in, in, in a moment but that's kind of where it's headed um, is now the scheme is um, at its full operation it's running in all the states um, we're starting to see um, more and more um, I guess explicit commentary from the, the people that run the, the NDIS the NDIA the, the, and the agency as well as now the government and the new minister Linda Reynolds about you know th- this thing is growing more quickly than we ever expected. Can we afford it? Can do it? We need to make changes basically, which I guess is kind of the the um, perennial tension, isn't it, in sort of um, in politics in general? But you know, in Australia, for example, 
um, you have these big social reforms that get introduced, um, whether it's in healthcare or in education or, you know, in this in the welfare system or in this case, um, sort of a disability social insurance program. And then you have, I guess, the other side of politics that sort of will say question, I guess, the financial viability of that scheme. And that seems to be the central tension in, 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 in politics in general. And that's where the NDIS, I think, is, has landed um, right about now, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I saw in your reporting that um, one of the documents, I think, revealed that the program or the scheme was growing faster than the government had anticipated mm. and six times faster than the agency wants it to grow. And uh, so the projections, I guess, and the budgeting that had been made was, um, you know, around $21.3 billion up to about $27.8 billion um, at this point. And people um, are saying, well, you know, when we're talking about reforming the system or reforming the program, we need to remember what the original intent of the scheme was and the spirit of the scheme, which was that it wasn't supposed to be like Social Security and it wasn't meant to be a capped program. It was meant to focus on what was kind of fair and reasonable and, you know, necessary adjustments and necessary um, resources that someone requires and looking at it from that medical and functional evidence base rather than from this um, financial base. Mm, and I think that that's, that's right. And so I think that that's the first point to make is that um, the, the central, uh, you know, because the government is sort of saying, oh, well, you know, compared to what the Productivity Commission um, who helped design the scheme, compared to the, how they thought this was going to grow, it's growing much faster than that. But they also, it's also, as you say, important to recognise that the point of the scheme is that people should get the, um, you know, what are called supports, funding for certain, uh, for the various things that they might need in their life. Um, they should get that if it's considered reasonable and necessary for their lives, right? It wasn't supposed to be... Um, this kind of limited pool of money and then we divvy it up in between the participants based on what we bet afterwards sort of after determining determining what the pot of money is then we, then we sort of divvy up what we think that they could get based on that, um, that pool of money so that's um, I guess an important point to make and I think you know um, they're just we now we're at a point where uh, the government is kind of being much more open about, um, you know, what it says um, it's trying to do because it is brought forth um, under the old Minister Stuart Robert a, a bunch of, um, you know, reforms or changes, overhauls to the scheme. Um, but it never was open about why it wanted to do that last year. It, it kind of was saying, oh, this is just about making the NDIS better and fairer um, in kind of... Um, using these sorts of slogans and sort of saying, well, you know, this is about fulfilling the original intent of the scheme. Um, but now I think they kind of have lost that argument because the disability community is basically uh, universally opposed to some of the things that they're going to do, which we guess we can talk about in more detail in a sec. But And so, therefore, they've kind of now gone, okay, right, well, we need, we need to sort of set up a new argument here if we're going to get these reforms through and now they're talking more openly about oh well if we don't do these things the scheme is not going to be sustainable and it's not going to be there for you know future participants and the like um 
but I think everyone sort of knows that the things that they had proposed last year, um, that's they were doing it for the same reasons. They just weren't being honest about it, right? Um, they, were, they weren't being honest about the fact that this was about uh, we can have a semantic discussion about the difference between cuts or slowing the growth in spending and slowing the growth in the number of people who access the scheme. But that's basically what the aim was, right? It was they want to put the NDIS on a, uh, in their mind, a more sustainable footing. So I guess at least now the debate can be had under sort of, you know, sort of more honest terms, right? You can yeah. sort of, you can, it's at least now, whereas Stuart Robert, you know, for all his kind of, he had a very, um, you know, everyone sort of says he had a very competitive relationship with some disability organisations and, and so far Linda Reynolds has struck a much more, um, uh, I don't know, collegiate tone, but but uh, Stuart Robert wasn't actually particularly honest about, uh, you know, what it is now that Linda Reynolds has said yesterday at a Senate committee, which is basically oh, we need to make a whole bunch of changes or the scheme is not going to be sustainable. Now, the, 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 none of the policies have changed, right? So, yeah. so so, she's only revealing that that was what the government was hoping to, the reason why the government was bringing forth these changes um, in the first place, um, I think. And I guess quickly the other point to make is, um, you know, um, uh, Bruce Bonnyhady, who's, um, you know, the initial chair of the... Um, of the NDIA, uh, you know, sort of considered an architect of the scheme. Um, he was saying uh, last week or two weeks ago at a, a Senate inquiry that, you know, well, if there's such a big uh, issue with scheme sustainability, uh, why have we only heard about it now? Like what's changed? Because, you know, 18 months ago the, the NDIA was saying in some of its own um, sort of documents that, there were no issues and everything was fine. So, what what mm. has been what what's been the big change in in twelve to eighteen months that has meant that this is now growing at, at, you know sort of out, at an out of control speed? What what's happened? And the other point you made, I guess, is as well, um, it's the same people running it. So, you know, who should be taking responsibility for that? Um, so, I think those are those are some sort of points that you'll probably be hearing in this debate as it um, plays out. Yeah, well, certainly a number of governments have used pandemics and recessions and economic issues to then get through some of the unpopular changes they've been wanting to make for a long time. So uh, perhaps that's one option or one potential explanation for um, the timing. It does seem quite um, surprising that it has happened so out of the blue and also that the government could choose to spend so much money on JobKeeper and also um, give that give that money and really have no conditions or few conditions attached to it in the sense that those businesses who ended up doing well and even put that money into executive bonuses now don't have to pay it back. Um, so it does seem like it's also a quite blatant um, situation of, you know, where you choose to put your money versus um, where it's required at the moment, what the policy priorities are. Um, but, Luke, let's talk about one of the changes um, that have been made before we get to independent assessments mm. or one of the proposed changes, I should say. Um, there are a number, as you said. One of them is that there would be an increased debt recovery scheme um, for participants who, quote-unquote, break the rules um, that's just kind of like air quotes to say, you know, I don't know, I don't quite understand what breaking the rules would cover. Um, mm. 
but I did see that uh, there were reports that two senior public servants who worked on the controversial robo-debt scheme um, are now working in compliance for the NDIA, mm. and that certainly has rang, rung alarm bells for people involved with the scheme, um, obviously given the past history of it and the fact that it went to court and was found to, you know, have breached the law. Um, what are your thoughts on that and also the change, um, the proposed changes to the legislation that governs the NDIS and the NDIA? Uh, so, yeah, uh, that, that was the, that report you're referring to by Rick Morton in the Saturday paper has been doing great um, reporting on the NDIS. Um, yes, yeah, so I guess there's that aspect of... Um, you know, who's sort of working on these reforms um, to the NDIS Act, which, you know, determines um, basically how the whole thing works. And then um, you mentioned the debt recovery um, uh, potential, um, I guess, mechanism. Um, we don't – it's hard to know um, what that will actually mean because the government – that, that – um, that mechanism, the proposed mechanism you're referring to um, – is, is, is included in some draft legislation which was leaked, uh, which um, Bill Shorten's office uh, appeared to um, get its hands on. So obviously that reflects the sort of uh, frustration within some public servants uh, within the NDIA. Um, well, basically what, what, what that is is that the government was going to introduce big sweeping changes to the NDIS Act and this debt recovery uh, thing, you know, recouping money from people who uh, get money uh, for particular supports and then apparently spend it on other things or don't spend it in a way that the agency is happy with would allow them to, to claim that money back kind of like sort of similar to what happens in the um, in the social security system. That is supposedly one um, thing that is proposed, but, you know, the government has not released the actual draft legislation, so we don't really know what's going to be in there and, and what's not. And some of the other things that were in that leaked, in the leaked draft have been ruled out by, um, by the minister. So hard to know. Um, I think more broadly, though, that change to that, to the NDIS Act, um, that legislation, which we still haven't seen, it, it's, I think, the big worry for people, disability advocates, um, they've been sort of very concerned about any changes to um, this idea of reasonable and necessary, right? Those are kind of the, the those are kind of the uh, magic words in the NDIS, basically, right? It's this, it's the principle that allows people to get almost uh, anything, provided that they can make a um, a reasonable, um, a case that it's reasonable and necessary, and it go, goes back to what we talked about before: the principle that this is not um, a, a scheme that should be capped, uh, and this is not a scheme that should, I guess, place barriers in front of dis people with disabilities. It should be up to them to determine what their goals are, and then for them to make a case that these are things that you know are, are reasonable, and then the agency can make a decision on that basis. Um, that we do know the government is unhappy with how um, how broad that potential principle or that principle is. And so Linda Reynolds said yesterday, oh, you know, people, there are so many different definitions of reasonable and necessary and so we need to create, we need to put up some boundaries, right? That means that the, the agency is, is going to and the government is going to write laws in a particular way that will either allow the minister to determine what things are not necessary in a sort of unilateral fashion. So the obvious 
thing, um, which I think we've talked about before, is um, you know uh, sex worker services or sex sex therapy services, uh, which Stuart Robert, the previous minister, said he was uh, completely opposed to, but the federal court said should should be funded if a person can make the case it's reasonable and necessary, um, but other things as well. So basically, it's a big change that will would allow the government to say. Yeah, we, we did originally start the scheme saying you could basically fund anything that wasn't funded by the states. Anything that was not funded by the state's health systems can be funded by the NDIS if it's reasonable and necessary. And now the government's saying, no, we we don't agree with that anymore. We want to put up boundaries that, that prevent certain things from being funded. It's a, it's, it's a very big change and, and people with disabilities and their, their advocates are concerned about it. Well, I noted that in the hearing yesterday that you were following along on and um, reporting on that there were some stories recounted uh, by um, members or participants in that hearing talking about particular stories or examples where the National Disability um, Insurance Agency was pushing back on some of the requests that people had made. And there was one story about um, someone who had epilepsy um, wanting a, a mat that was kind of really essential to their own safety if they were having an epileptic seizure. And it had a really unfortunate outcome, but it certainly did highlight the fact that um, it doesn't seem like it's a... a a complete free for all. Um, there does there do seem to be instances where the NDIA pushes back on things that um, others might conceive to be um, might consider to be reasonable and necessary. Well, that's right. So the NDIA, uh, I guess the, the the tension here, right, is that the law itself is quite broad and allows for um, lots of things to be funded, but the agency is still responsible for determining in its own way what um, it chooses to fund, right? So that's the tension. And and so often it just says no to people and then they have to go to the um, AAT, which is like the tribunal, which um, can allow you to appeal decisions like NDIS decisions. And then the, a the AAT might say, actually, no, the law says that this could be funded, so it should be funded. I mean, in the case of Liam um, Danaher, who, who, you know, died um, the age of 23, uh, and whose case came up yesterday in, in the inquiry. Um, yes, you know, his his family were fighting to get that seizure mat for months and the agency, um, you know, was, uh, you know, engaged lawyers as it often does to, to make its case that this should not be funded. So, um, yes, it's not a complete free-for-all at all. The agency makes decisions which often uh, prevent people from getting... Um, funding that they, you know, want. The agency often says no to people and beyond that, the agency sometimes says no to people and then is found by the sort of independent umpire to have denied people funding which um, under the law they were um, sort of, you know, they had the right to get. So um, that but it kind of that sort of reflects, I suppose, the fact why the government is now making these changes to the law because it wants greater protections to sort of um, substantiate the decisions it's making because the the, the sort of its attitude um, towards what should be funded and what's not internally is not entirely consistent with the law, which is, I, I don't, you know, for want of a, word, a better word, 
a bit more generous than its sort of internal attitude towards these things. Mm. Well, Luke, let's also talk about something we have delved into in detail uh, last time we spoke because it was at the time very contentious. It still is. And we have seen some movement in this space uh, from the government and also, I guess, a clarifying of the the topic, and that is the independent assessments. And you mentioned uh, Bruce Bonihady, who is the Melbourne Disability Institute director, and as he said, considered to be the architect of the NDIS. He said in that parliamentary inquiry you were referring to earlier that, quote, independent assessments are not independent. He said... Um, that robo-planning will blow up the NDIS and it will also blow up the vision for this scheme to be there for all Australians. So, I mean, there's some strong words there, some very kind of um, clear language, and certainly I don't think anyone would be confused as to what he is saying about independent assessments. Um, We have talked about them briefly, but um, for those who may have missed our conversation, what are independent assessments? And um, now that we have this greater information, your uh, reporting that I was mentioning earlier um, in terms of the secret documents from um, the NDIA and also uh, we now have the information from the minister in charge, Minister Reynolds, from yesterday and her assessment. So with all of that in mind, um, now that we have more information, uh, what are these proposed independent assessments that, although they're supposedly paused, are actually still likely to go ahead? Uh, so the assessments are, you know, at the moment, uh, uh, participants and applicants to the NDIS submit reports and, you know, evidence from their own trading specialists, um, and then that is assessed by the agency. And what the government wants to do is have people go and do an interview of about three hours, give or take, with a, an allied health professional that is contracted by the government, um, and, and that they would uh, essentially conduct a questionnaire um, and and the government says that this would make it more uh, consistent because it believes that people's own specialists are essentially biased and they're giving people more generous uh, assessments than um, than is appropriate. Um, the, Which is controversial, given that these are, you know, doctors and allied health professionals. It's, it's, it's controversial. Uh, it's also consistent with what they did with the dis- disability support pension, mm. which is to introduce uh, sort of a, a government doctor to uh, also oversee that process. Um, and basically, this is just kicked, um, sort of created an almighty fight between the disability community who are completely opposed to it and the old minister, Stuart Robert. Now the new minister, Linda Reynolds, has said last month uh, she was going to pause the rollout. These were supposed to start in the middle of the year. She said, we're going to press pause. And the community basically thought, oh, this is great because it means that we, they might be scrapped. She's still deciding whether or not to go ahead with it. Uh, and her language was, uh, I think, a little untidy and didn't quite um, make the point that she made yesterday, which is that actually uh, she's committed to rolling these out and the consultation period that she's uh, said she would undertake is only really aimed at determining uh, a, a version of these assessments which uh, perhaps might be a bit more favourable or perhaps be preferred. So she's not at all considering getting rid of this policy. Uh, she's just said, we're going to delay it and we're going to talk to people to try and come to a version of it that the community is, um, I guess, perhaps able to support. Um, that seems unlikely at this point because there is literally 
universal opposition from the disability community. Uh, and as you mentioned, Bruce Bonney, Haiti as well, has been incredibly vocal about why he thinks it's a bad idea. Um, the Australian Medical Association uh, recently came out against the proposal from the government and a whole bunch of other health organisations and um, legal groups and the like. It's pretty much, at the moment, universally opposed, except from John Walsh, who is another former NDIS executive. He supports them. But aside from that, um, they are very unpopular. And so this does set up a real, um, you know, it does set the new minister on a collision course with um, the, the community very early on in her tenure as the minister. Mm. Well, some of the questions that you're asked are kind of weird and um, don't make a lot of sense to many people. I mean, one of them is, can you count coins? Um, I'm not using the direct language here, but um, it approximately is asking, can you catch a bus? Mm. Um, these are yes or no answer questions. There's no kind of ability to qualify things. And, um, you know, anyone who has a disability would know that it's not a black and white yes or no answer for pretty much all of the questions um, that, you know, people are asked, like, can you dress yourself? Well, maybe for some people it depends on the day. Yes. Um, you know, if their condition is fluctuating uh, or neurological. So this is something that I know people are rightly concerned by, not just because of the fact that the person who's doing it is someone unknown to them mm -hmm. and it's only three hours and it is this, um, yeah, really stressful situation where someone has to basically re-disclose their disability to a new person and go into all the detail in a very kind of um, simplistic fashion of mm. how it supposedly affects them um, and their functioning. So I can absolutely understand why not just people in the disability community, but also those who are advocates for people with disabilities are really um, worried about it. What are your thoughts around um, this this change, I'm not going to call it a reform because it's really not. Um, what do you think about this change and the fact that um, your reporting has revealed, I guess, something that we were or people in the disability field were concerned about and we've discussed before, which was, is this just a way to try and cut um, down participants' funding portions and also to reduce the number of people who can access the NDIS? So, yes, we reported um, documents that we'd seen which showed that uh, last year there was an estimate that, you know, this these, introducing these assessments would reduce um, spending um, the, by $700 million, right, $700 million saving. Intriguingly, the... Uh, the department secretary and the minister said they weren't aware of that figure at um, uh, Senate uh, estimates yesterday, which I found intriguing. But, um, you know, the documents I've seen are fairly uh, categorical. So we'll see uh, how that plays out. Um, they're not normally documents that, uh, um, you know, government officials or, or ministers would confirm anyway. And, I, you know, obviously put those questions to them and I didn't get a denial when I asked them uh, a couple of weeks ago. But I guess putting that um, issue to one side, the kind of government has been arguing first, it or first tried to argue that, um, you know, these assessments are not about cutting funding or the growth in, in spending. Uh, it's about making um, the system fairer. And there is an argument to be made for that because um, 
it is true that if you have access to, um, uh, you know, sort of family support or, uh, you know, you live in an area with an ac access to better health professionals, you can access the private system uh, more easily, you, you have more money to pay for reports, you can potentially get better a better outcome. Uh, there is inequality in the NDIS and, and none of the organisations or advocates deny this and they say that it's something that needs to be worked to worked on they just don't support this proposal which sort of says basically um therefore we need to sort of reduce funding for some people in order to make it fairer that's kind of the principle which the government uh, had been denying but i think linda reynolds yesterday made it a bit clearer that no this is a this is a, a, a change based on making the scheme, quote, more sustainable, which is kind of a euphemism for um, reducing the growth in spending or, you know, cuts, basically. Not, well, not cuts, but um, I guess uh, trying to stop how much money we spend on, on, on the program. So, I mean, I think it is important to note that the people uh, who are opposed to this scheme uh, to this change independent assessment they don't say everything's working great there are issues with particularly people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, um missing out on on um on a, a package um of the same quality or size as someone else because they are limited in, I guess, the supports or the uh, reports that they can gather and, and that sort of stuff. That's true. But um, I think the fundamental principle has always been that this is supposed to be a, a scheme based on co-design, right? And so if you're trying to solve a problem that everyone acknowledges exists with a proposal that everyone is against, um, perhaps it's it's sort of, you know, time to go back to the drawing board rather than sort of pushing ahead with it um, because, you know, that doesn't really sound like co-design, does it? I mean, literally, I, I, I don't – often, you know, people will say there's almost universal opposition to these changes, and, but it's kind of an exaggeration. But in this case, it, it is literally all the – organizations are categorically opposed it's it's quite stunning and so if this is to go ahead i mean it will be the government doing something to the disability community about a scheme that directly uh, affects them and is based on helping them that they are opposed to i think that shouldn't be forgotten yeah, well, it certainly does raise the question about whether these changes would, in fact, ensure that disabled people are treated with respect and dignity. Um, it certainly doesn't seem that that's how it would be delivered, given how the trials have been going, um, based on what trial participants have said has mm. been their experience. And I know that you have spoken individually to a number of them to get a sense about how they felt about the process and um, what kinds of things or issues it brought up for them. Um, in some cases, it has been clear that these trial independent assessments have led to reductions in people's plans or proposed reductions. What is what are your what are the insights that you've gleaned from these discussions with people who have a disability who are directly affected? Um, well, I guess the first point to make is that obviously the people that I've spoken to, uh, you know, um, people who have decided that they want to talk to me and s about their experience, and so I suppose by definition, people that are unhappy about um, the 
the, the way that those these assessments are carried out. But in saying that, um, it's kind of what we talked about earlier. That the questions are just so blunt that you can't really get across. Um, you know, you the people have felt that they couldn't quite get across things that are important that should be taken into account when determining whether they should be eligible for the NDIS or whether, you know, what um, funding packages they they should get. Um, and also, I guess, um, uh, I think, you know, one um, lady that I spoke to, Nicole Rogerson, who, who's um, the head of an autism organisation and whose son has autism, was just saying that, like, it was really, um, like, it was really quite a negative experience because her son was asked these questions that just made him feel really bad about himself. It focused on all this stuff that he couldn't do. Um, and, you know, he, you know, she ended up stopping the assessment midway through because she just felt that it was um, not a, a very pleasant experience. And if you compare that to, I suppose, going and seeing your treating um, specialist, somebody that, you, you know, you've developed a relationship with, um, it's a different experience to going and knowing, okay, I've got three hours, give or take, with this person that I've never met. And in that um um, in that interview, I have, you know, I have to, this is, you know, going to be a fundamental um, part of whether I'm granted access to the NDIS or what my funding package will look like. Like that's quite nerve wracking, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, Bill Shorten has been kind of um, making the rhetorical point um, quite effectively about like, you know, people are going to be going to um, re-interview for the NDIS and like, you know, yeah, it's not quite like that, but it it kind of is as well. So, um, yeah, that it's uh, you can understand the anxiety, right? You can, and then, um, and if the the agency, you know, for the people that have taken part in these trials, actually hasn't it hasn't refused it's refused to actually tell people what their 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 um, plan would look like based on the assessment, the independent assessment, right? So they're doing these trials and saying, oh, we, you can get a sense of what the assessments are like. But the, I mean, and, and obviously the experience that a person has in that assessment is important, but I think most people would agree that the, the main point is, okay, what's the outcome? Like what yeah. would be, what would my plan look like? And the, the people that I've spoken to who've asked for that information, like, oh, can we get a draft plan based on this assessment? They've actually been told, oh, no, we're not doing that. It's just like, well, okay, well, then, like what's the, what's the point then, right? Mm. Like, like if I was going to be wanting to take part in, in something like this, I would eventually want, like the point of it is to know and how will this impact my, the funding that I get? That, that seems to me to be the central question, and and actually the NDIA has not been transparent about that. So, yeah, there's a there are a myriad issues um, with it, but um, I guess we'll see. The government says it's going to release the trial, um, the the results from the second trial. This is the second trial they're doing. They're going to release that um, soon. So I guess we'll we'll find out what people uh, have been telling the agency um, about how they've you know, whether they've thought it's a positive process or not, but important, as I just said, to note, they'll only be talking about their experiences in the interview. They won't be talking about what impact this would have on their funding, and, and that seems to me to be the central question, which the trial is going to not have an answer for. So.
Mm, that's a really great point. Um, Luke, just finally, the budget is coming up on Tuesday, yes. next Tuesday. Um, and so I was wondering, do you think that we'll get any sense of funding for the NDIA and the NDIS um, in terms of what we've been discussing today, in terms of reducing or slowing down the growth of the budget for this scheme? Um, well, uh, I mean, I guess the, the short answer to that question is that well, there will be figures in the budget um, and we'll have to go back and compare what the sort of projections were in last year's budget um, over the sort of you know, forward estimates to what is in there. I mean, mm, which is the, a four-year period, I believe. The four yeah, estimates. that's right. So, so the, the, I mean, the government has been saying, and Linda Reynolds said the, yesterday that um, you know, funding is actually out of control. So, presumably, um, there won't be sort of visible um, reductions in in spending because, according to the government, spending is is rising much more quickly than they had envisaged and or hoped. So, but there will be, um, you know, there will be some uh, additional, you know, data points in there that will be useful. But I, I guess also worth noting just quickly, um, the, the NDIA has a, 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 a financial stability, a sustainability report, which it, it prepares, which is supposedly, uh, you know, underpins all the, data that, um, that now is being used to advance the case that the scheme is, you know, growing out in an out-of-control fashion, and it refuses to release that. So I just think that that's an important thing to, to point out, and when the government and the agency bandies about figures about the funding, I mean, you know, I have to report, we have to report what they say, and, and but it's hard to put them in, in a, a broader context because the assumptions that are used to... Um, to underpin the projections and, you know, when they say, oh, it's going to grow by this percent in, you know, by 2024 or whatever, we don't have the assumptions um, really that underpin um, those projections. And so that's important to point out. We're sort of mm. people reporting on it and advocates are kind of um, uh, sort of, you know, flying blind in a sense because we sort of, we're just getting these headline, the headline data from the agency when it wants to kind of divulge what it wants to. Notably, Linda Reynolds did say that she wants to see more transparency about the data, um, so that's potentially a good thing, and let's hope that she does that. Yeah. Luke, you've just been such a wealth of knowledge and insight on this topic, and I thank you for covering it with um, great depth and and also, yeah, accuracy and um just it's it's been so valuable to have someone who really knows this and understands it and of course as you said rick morton as well at the saturday paper we've got two of the best journalists in the country covering this area and i know that anyone who's interested in the issues of welfare and inequality and disability um, will be heartened to know that you are on the issue and uh, trying to uncover what the truth is of the matter so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and really um, explaining what these changes will mean for people with a disability. Always good to be on, Amy. I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program Richard Beasley, SC. He is the author of a brand new book that has recently been released. It's called Dead in the Water, a very angry book about our greatest environmental catastrophe, the death of the Murray-Darling Basin. Richard Beasley is a senior counsel at the New South Wales Bar. He also was senior counsel assisting at the Murray-Darling Royal Commission, which was established in 2018 by the South Australian Labor Wetherill Government. And that Royal Commission was conducted by Commissioner Brett Walker, SC. I'm so pleased to have you on the show, Richard, and thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having me on, Amy. Now, Richard, to do the research for this interview, not only did I read your book and some of the reviews, which there have been a number that are very glowing and um, people really getting behind this book and rallying behind it, but there were also a, a couple of critical voices that seem to get a little bit upset about the fact that this book is angry. And I guess you can't please everyone, can you, when you're writing a book? But I was really interested in the breadth of responses to this book. But also, of course, we're dealing with what should be quite uncontroversial content. Yeah, tell me who's been getting angry at me first, because they they haven't had the courage to come forward to me yet. (laughs) I did hear an interview where you were criticised for being angry at conservatives and particularly attacking the conservative side of politics. But when I read this book, I didn't quite get that view because a lot of what has happened during this period was actually during a Labor government as well. Well, the Basin Plan was enacted as a through federal parliament in 2012 when there was still a federal Labor government and that basin plan as enacted for reasons that I can explain was unlawful at the time. Uh, However, there has been a Liberal government in Canberra since August 2013 and the, the negligence and maladministration of the implementation of the plan identified by Brett Walker has happened under that government and successive governments since Abbott was the Prime Minister. But um, you're right, uh, this should be a bipartisan matter because the Basin Plan should be based on science, not politics, and there's undoubtedly a consensus about what the best science tells us about what we need to do to save uh, our rivers and wetlands and um, our ecosystems in the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm. I found this really interesting reading in the ways that you talk about the law and obviously the law in this situation is pretty clear and you do um, almost write, I guess, a love letter to the Water Act of 2007. (laughs) As long as you don't say I wrote a love letter to John Howard who had it passed, but uh, (laughs) yeah, good on him for for getting uh, the Water Act through in 2007 just before... Uh, which was the last year of his government, of course, before Rudd got elected. But the the Water Act was passed by federal parliament during a crisis. That that crisis was the millennium drought, um, which regrettably and unfortunately is likely to be the normal state for much of the basin in years to come because of climate change. But the millennium drought lasted about 10 years. It caused a terrible amount of damage through what I'll call southeastern Australia, outside of the capital cities, I should say, which unfortunately 
Well, fortunately, depending on what you, you believe, most Australians live in catapult cities and most Australians, it's not that they don't care about our environment, but they don't get to see what degradation is happening because mm. so many of us live in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Adelaide, et cetera, that we got, don't get to see what white Australians, the apocalypse that's occurred to our environment because of over-extraction of uh, feeble water supplies and land clearing, what sort of devastation that's caused and... As a result of all that, but particularly over-extraction of water from the Murray-Darling system, Howard passed an act that said, basically legislated as facts, that we have over-allocated water to grow food and fibre in the Murray-Darling Basin, an area about twice the size of France, through southern Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and the ACT, and we've got to stop doing that. We won't go back to pre-1788. We'll still allocate water to people to grow things, grow food, grow fibre, but we're going to stop at the point where we're killing the environment. We're going to return some water that we've allocated to growing food and fibre and return it to the environment so that we don't kill the wetlands that we've got international treaty obligations to, and frankly, that we should save for future generations. And we're not going to do that based on what the National Party thinks or the Labor Party thinks or the Liberal Party thinks or some bureaucrat thinks. We're going to make the decision about how much water needs to go back to the environment from consumptive uses based on, quote, the best available scientific knowledge, close quote. Yes. Fantastic idea, quite remarkable that politicians would hand essentially power to scientists, even over a sciencey thing, like how much water does the environment need? But unfortunately, having passed that act, they've found it too difficult to live with. It's been seriously lobbied against. And the basin plan, which was meant to be based on the best available science, as Walker found in his Royal Commission, was in fact based on a political fix and the amount of water allocated to the environment is nowhere near enough to save it. Well, it was interesting that uh, you say you, you didn't write a love letter to John Howard, but um, Malcolm Turnbull was the minister responsible at the time. He then did eventually become prime minister as one of those yeah. liberal prime ministers. Um, you know, was he the only friendly ear to science or did he even change? I don't, like, I don't, even think, I don't know that anyone in that parliament that passed the water realised what they were doing. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that they forgot forgot how to read a piece of legislation and I think it became quite a shock to them when they realised, God, we've uh, we've actually passed an environmental law that puts the environment first. How could this happen? And what's really happened since then is they've pretended they haven't done that. Um, but you don't need to be a, a, a great lawyer to be able to construe the Water Act properly. All you have to be able to do is read and comprehend English. It's an Environment First Act, and what it, what it clearly says is that we're going to stop degradating our environment and we're going to create this thing called the Basin Plan for southeastern Australia that will return enough water out of irrigated agriculture and mining, give it back to the environment so that we stop the degradation of the environment and have a sustainable environment and meet our international treaty obligations, etc., now, that's proven too much to actually lawfully influence, and so we have this unlawful basin plan, which, as I said, wasn't based on science. The scientists did the work for about four years after the Water Act was passed in 2007. A whole lot of hydrologists, ecologists, all sorts of flora and fauna experts, and ultimately computer modelers, and they came up with a 
with a science-based figure that said we're going to have to return in this system on a yearly average about 4,000 to 7,000 billion litres of water a year to the environment in order to save it and maintain it. To give you an idea of scale, that's about 8 to 14 Sydney harbours worth of water. There's 500 billion litres of water in Sydney harbour. Within a few months after there was a massive outcry and a big, big protest by certain groups uh, that were encouraged on by irrigation lobbyists, the 4,000, 7,000 billion litre figure miraculously came down to 2,750 billion litres or about half of what's needed to save the environment without any explanation by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is the Commonwealth agency that had to draft and implement the basin plan. They've never disclosed their science. They've never disclosed their science to Australia's brilliant scientists because they know if they do, they'll, they'll be shown up to have based this on a political fix rather than on science. To take this conversation a little bit back in the bigger picture, because um, you did mention there that so many Australians do live in capital cities and also the suburbs around these capital cities, and so they perhaps don't see all that much of the Murray-Darling Basin. There's an old joke, Patrick Cook joke, about a Sydney person whose basil plant starts flowering, which they take to mean the drought is over. <laughs> um, that's... Um, a, a, a funny example about how little most Australians that live in our capital cities, where, us, as I said, most of us live, have no idea about the damage that has been caused over the last, particularly since the Second World War, to outback Australia. Yeah, well, my um, basil grows like a weed, so I, I don't think I would use that as an indicator. But it makes total sense. I, I get where you're coming from. I was thinking about the headlines that we did see around big fish kills around the Murray Cod. And that was something that was quite public because we saw videos of farmers holding up dead fish, standing yep. in algae, essentially, blue-green algae. So I wondered, you know, we may have seen, I guess, these extreme incidences of environmental catastrophe where we're having mass fish kills. But I wonder, could you just share with us for us to get a picture of the significance of the Murray-Darling Basin in its ecological significance? I prefer to call it Southeastern Australia because I think the average person gets a better perspective about what I'm talking about. But it's the area of Australia from southern Queensland through most of New South Wales, much of Victoria and down into South Australia to where the mouth of the Murray is in, in the uh, Gore, which is about 80 k's south of Adelaide. It's where 60% of Australia's farms are. Um, it's where we grow most of our food and fibre. It's got a food and fibre industry worth about $25 billion. It's also where probably our two best-known rivers are, which is why it's called the Murray-Darling Basin, the, the Murray River and the Darling River. To give some context to them, though, we keep talking about Australians use the term the mighty Murray. It's not. It's a very long river, but it hasn't got much water in it, and it never has. There's more water runs out the mouth of the Amazon in a day than runs out the mouth of the Murray in a year. The Darling River is essentially being killed. It's, there's almost... And has been virtually no flow down that river for many years, particularly in the southern part of the Darling below the Menindee Lakes. These are hydrologically feeble rivers. By that I mean they don't have much water in them, and yet we have allowed irrigation to proceed in Australia and grow in Australia, irrigated agriculture, as though the Murray is the Amazon, and it's not. 
We are a country prone to drought and we are a country facing a pretty bleak future, frankly, if emissions don't drop in terms of climate change. The Murray-Darling Basin also has 16 Ramsar-listed wetlands. They are the treasures of the Murray-Darling Basin. These are wetlands that are protected by an international treaty called the Ramsar Treaty that Australia is a, a signatory to. And so we have obligations to maintain the ecological character of those wetlands at the time we signed up to the treaty, which, frankly, we're not doing. So it's a vastly important system for both Growing food and fibre for the economies of rural and regional Australia, but also for the environment. And what's happened, as was recognised by Howard in 2007 during the Millennium Drought, we have just simply got things terribly wrong, the balance terribly wrong in southeastern Australia, where we've allocated way too much water to be pumped out of these rivers to grow food and fibre, and that's killing our environment. It's going to continue to kill it. Whether or not there's a basin plan or not, we're going to really have to come up with some really bloody good ideas to help regional and rural Australia come to grips with a future that is certain to have less water in it because of climate change. So that's essentially the picture of the Murray-Darling Basin or southeastern Australia. Thank you for that. I also want to just touch on what you raise in the introduction, which is the fact that there has been an Aboriginal basin plan uh, yeah. and that the basin is home to about 15% of Australia's Aboriginal people and over 40 Aboriginal nations. What yeah. was and is the Aboriginal basin plan? The Aboriginal Basin Plan is essentially the basin plan that was meant to be drafted from Howard's Water Act. And it's really just this. In, in simple terms, you could describe both the same way. But the Aboriginal Basin Plan was this. Take what you need, but don't be greedy. Don't take more than you need. Respect the environment. Now, that was the way that Aboriginal nations used the waters of the Murray-Darling Basin for tens of thousands of years, and that's essentially what the instruction is from the Water Act that the Basin Plan is meant to be based on. We will still take water from this system to grow things. We will still allocate water to irrigators and farmers to enable them to grow crops, to grow whatever they want, whether it's cotton or rice or citrus or grapes, whatever. Water their stock but we will just stop at the point where we kill the environment. That doesn't seem terribly unreasonable to me. In fact, it sounds really, really incredibly reasonable and a good idea. It's hard to implement because what it does mean is taking water off people or taking water off communities, not in a compulsory way, voluntary sales, but it does mean a reduction in water use by irrigators, whether they're corporate irrigators or individual irrigators. And that's a challenging thing to do and I understand why that frightens people in rural towns and regional centres and why they think that that might be destructive of their communities, their economies, etc. It may not be. But as I said, whether we have a basin plan or not, our government, our governments, are going to have to start helping those people adjust to the certainty of having less water in any event because of the certainty of a hotter and drier future. Exactly how hot and how much dry it will be, I can't tell you, and probably even the scientists can't tell you, but the certainty is it's going to be hotter and drier. And to give you some perspective about how much drier, 
We're already one degree hotter in the Murray-Darling Basin or 1.2 degrees hotter in, in Australia in the Murray-Darling Basin than we were 100 or so years ago. We're looking at an, at least another one degree C temperature rise within the next 10 to 30 years and possibly up to two degrees. God help us if it gets any worse than that. But for every one degree C, it gets hotter in the Murray-Darling Basin. We lose 15% of water runoff into our river systems. So if you make it two degrees, that's 30% less water anyway. That's going to be catastrophic and that's going to be really hard for people that live in regional and rural Australia. And, it, you know, it's really time our politicians stopped bickering over uh, in an ideological way about climate change scientists and actually got around to having some good ideas about how we're going to structurally adjust rural and regional Australia to the certainty of having a future of less water and how they're going to adapt to that. Yeah. Well, it does make me think about two points that you make. The first is that Australia has been ramping up cotton production. As an example, of course, there are a number of types of agriculture that require water and irrigation. But for example, you say in 1934, Australia produced 17,000 bales of cotton. By 1985, that had become 1.1 million. And by 2012, we passed 5 million bales. Uh, with 600,000 hectares of land dedicated to growing that crop and we became the world's third biggest exporter of cotton. You then go on to say... Australia is approaching 100 years of drought in the last 140. When I think of those two points, it makes you think that Australia perhaps hasn't been and we haven't been economic and environmental realists in our strategy around uh, what industries we're ramping up and increasing our production in. You're probably right. One one thing I I wouldn't do, if, if... If a corporation or an individual person has been given a, a water allocation, I wouldn't presume to tell them what crop they should grow. If they want to grow cotton, they can grow cotton. The real problem is not so much growing cotton, it's how much water we have allocated to grow cotton. You talked about the the fish kills a couple of questions ago, and that was one time where the crisis of the Murray-Darling Basin did get on the front pages of newspapers and get covered in television mediums because people could actually show these pictures of all these millions of dead fish, and it's a very graphic, almost Old Testament-type plague picture, and it got some attention. Those fish kills are going to occur again, and the scientists have told us that those fish kills are caused by a number of reasons. Most fundamentally, there's not enough oxygen in the water, hence the fish suffocate. But why is there not enough oxygen in the water? Why is there not enough flow in the Darling River, for example, where all these fish died? That's simply because of two things. One, it didn't rain enough. That's a, a global problem. But two, over-extraction of water north of the system in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, primarily to grow cotton. We've, we've allowed them, the cotton growers, They can grow cotton, that's fine, but we've given them too much water and that causes the terrible environmental damage that's occurred to the Menindee Lakes in the southern part of the Darling. So it's not not that I would tell anyone, you know, don't grow rice, don't grow cotton, even though they're they're water-intensive crops. I wouldn't tell anyone not to grow almonds, even though that's an incredibly water-intensive permanent crop. But it's more about how much water irrigated agriculture gets as against our environment, particularly in times when 
there's stress in the system. This year it rained, which is great. Um, that's the weather. The long-term climactic trend is hotter and drier, and we just can't keep allocations uh, to the extent that they are. Mm. Not unless we want to be an environmental pariah. We're already a climate change pariah. If we want to be an environmental pariah and allow the Coorong to die, allow our other wetlands to die, allow the um, uh, Ramsar-listed wetlands to die, fine. That's a decision we can make as a country if we want to be that kind of environmental pariah and allow parts of the environment to permanently die and deprive future generations from enjoying them and deprive the Aboriginal custodians of those, traditional custodians of those parts of the environment to lose them permanently, well, that's a moral decision Australia can make. But if we don't want to make that decision, then we have to take some more water out of uh, irrigated agriculture and actually abide by the Water Act and do things lawfully. Well, that's the the kind of tension I was, I guess, observing in what you've said is the sense that whoever allocates water and decides how much water is able to be allocated and sold to, you know, whoever can afford to buy it and um, needs it based on what they've got, that is, it seems like, the strategic tension point. It then causes downstream effects where farmers who have then become reliant upon needing these licences because they've already been receiving them for so many years and then may not get access to them if we change the rules and don't have as much to give. It seems like that's one of the problems and that's perhaps why farmers got so angry in Griffith. Yeah. Well, they burnt, they burnt the guide to the basin plan, which contained the figures that I said of the science-based figures of between 4,000 to 7,000 billion litres of water on average needing to be returned to the environment to save it. Look, I'd be the last person to suggest that this is easy. The science isn't easy, nor is the politics. I do think, though, that we need to make a decision about whether we decide there are fundamental areas of the environment that we, because we've got international treaty obligations and because we want to save them, for future generations, we've just got to make sure that they survive and we have to make sure that they get enough water and get the flows they need when they need them every certain number of years. That's, in the end, to do that, that is purely a science question. It Mm. is not a, a question for a politician to decide. And if we do that, and that's what the Water Act says we must do, then we don't have a lawful basin plan because it doesn't contain what is described in the Water Act as an environmentally sustainable level of take, that is take of water from the river systems. It's not environmentally sustainable. If we want to make the decision that we're not going to be environmentally sustainable, well, then our politicians should be honest about that and say, look, we're not going to put the environment first. We're going to keep giving more water to irrigators and to people that grow food and fibre in the basin And we're going to sacrifice large parts of our environment. But at least be honest about that. Don't pretend you're putting the environment first when you're not. This was Walker's gripe in his Royal Commission about saying the Basin Plan's unlawful because it is just politics. It's not science. If if Australia as a whole makes a, a decision that we're not going to protect large parts of our environment and we're going to give as much water as we can to grow food and fibre in the Murray-Darling Basin to make as much money as we can or as much money as the growers can, fine. I don't agree with that, but that would be at least being honest and admitting that's what you're doing and that at the most you're going to do is tinker around the edges with the environment. 
Otherwise, you've got to abide by the law as it stands at the moment, which is to put the environment first. What makes me most angry about this is the total dishonesty with it, the dishonesty of our politicians and bureaucrats who want to keep up the pretense that the basin plan is environment first when it's not. It's actually economic outcomes first and tinkering around and doing a little bit for the environment, but not what's necessary to save it. If that's what we want to do as a country, at least admit it and be honest about it. However, if we want to put the environment first, then you've got to change the basin plan because it sure isn't legal as it, as it stands. It doesn't contain a, enough return to the environment to save it. It doesn't incorporate any projections for climate change, which is itself unlawful. So we've got to make a decision. And, and what most upsets me is just the dishonesty and the pretense. One of the quotes that I read from this book that certainly resonated with me was the large group of Australian and international experts who you say peer-reviewed the Murray-Darling Basin Authority's guide and it was a group of you know highly regarded yeah. environmental water experts across the world and in this report you quote them as saying quote the driving value of the water act is that a triple bottom line approach environment economic social is replaced by one in which environment becomes the overriding objective with the social and economic spheres required to quote do the best they can unquote with whatever is left once environmental needs are addressed in Interpreted literally, the Water Act implies an outcome which is broadly recognised as one that is unlikely to be socially or economically and therefore politically viable. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it is pretty yeah, direct. It is. That's, that's a group of scientists peer-reviewing the Basin Plan work in 2010. As you say, a group of eminent, a lot of them internationally based scientists who were, I think, frankly amazed that the Water Act had been passed and that the, we did have this environment first law. And what, in the end, they, having spoken to people in the Murray-Darling Basin, what, in the end, they said in their report is that they're concerned that scientists are being asked to tweak the science so as to, in fact, evade the strictures of the Water Act. So they were calling this out even before Walker's Royal Commission. They recognise that this is an environment first act and that's going to be really hard for the politicians. You mentioned this triple bottom line. This is a mantra from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and the, and the government since they've legislated the unlawful basin plan that it's really not environment first. It's this magical thing where you simultaneously optimise environmental, economic and social outcomes. It's, a, it's, a, it's another load of dishonest pap. You cannot at the same time simultaneously optimise an environmental and economic outcome. If you give more water for the environment, for our native fish and our native trees and, our, and the wetlands and the forest, etc., you are taking water off irrigated agriculture. So you are improving environmental outcomes, but no doubt you are diminishing the economic output from pumping water out of the system. It's a joke to suggest that there's this means of simultaneously optimising these three opposed outcomes, economic outcomes, environmental outcomes, and whatever the hell social outcomes is meant to mean. It's an environment-first law that puts the environment ahead so that it gets enough not to be destroyed, and that at that point, once you've reached the amount of water the environment needs to be sustained, 
then you do the best you can with what's left in terms of optimising economic and social outcomes from the water that's left available to grow food and fibre and for other uses. So if we look at and think about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan that has been put into effect and that is meant to be enacted or put into practice, what did we end up with? Have we ended up with the triple bottom line so-called approach um, that clearly is not achievable? And uh, what was in the final plan that was so contrary to the Water Act? Well, the final plan says that we'll return on average 2,750 billion litres of water a year. Ultimately, what's going to be returned because of some other unlawful measures that I've mentioned in my book that Walker described as pseudoscience rather than science. In the end, the amount of water that's at most going to be returned to the environment is about 2,100 billion litres a year on average. There is no scientific evidence, including from the CSIRO, our leading scientific organisation, that says that will get anywhere near, not within a bull's roar of doing much to save our environment. We're spending $13 billion on this plan that will do very little for the environment. And so it's essentially a waste of money, to be to be honest, and a waste of taxpayers' money. Um, so that's what we've been left with, is a basin plan which will not produce the flows that are required every certain number of years to save the environment. It, 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 it gets very technical, but the easiest way of describing, I think, for people in terms of water being returned to the system is that, let's just use the Murray as an example. The Murray River itself is a, a Ramsar-listed protected thing, the, the, the river itself. But obviously, rivers have floodplains and wetlands. They're called floodplains and wetlands for a reason. They need water over them every so often in the form of a flood. And the basin plan was designed, we're talking about yearly, I've been mentioning 2,100 gigalitres of water on a yearly average. In fact, what is actually meant to occur is they're meant to be stronger flows every number of years so that the water goes over the banks of the river at certain spots and gets out into the floodplains and the wetlands. And that has fantastic ecological outcomes. And depending on what parts of the environment we're talking about it, they might need a certain level of flood every four years and a bigger flood once every seven years and a, a smaller flood once every two years. It, 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 it all depends on the science there. But we are ending up with a, a basin plan that no, that there's absolutely no scientific evidence at all that will do much to assist the environment. And that seems to me to be a fantastic waste uh, amongst other things that's wrong with that, <laughs> including it being against the law, a fantastic waste of billions of dollars in, in public funds. That was my first, um, the first part of my interview with Barrister Richard Beasley, SC. We've been talking about his new book, Dead in the Water, um, a very angry book about our greatest environmental catastrophe, the death of the Murray-Darling Basin, which has been published by Alan and Anwen. Coming up after this short break, you'll hear the much shorter concluding part of our conversation where we cover what happened and what came out of the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission that Richard was so closely involved with, and then also what the future holds for the Murray-Darling Basin and what uh, areas of recourse 
uh, we might be able to pursue to get these policy changes that are needed to put the environment first, as you've been hearing. So uh, do stick around for that. That is coming up in just a couple of minutes. And here is the second part of that interview with Barrister Richard Beasley, and we are talking about why he's so angry about the death of the Murray-Darling Basin, and now we talk uh, in the concluding minutes of this conversation about his involvement in the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission. Well, I found this part of your book particularly interesting given that you were senior counsel assisting at the Murray-Darling Royal Commission, which, as you say, was conducted by Commissioner Brett Walker, SC. And you do quote throughout a number of chapters interactions that you have with witnesses where you're questioning the witnesses for this Royal Commission, as is Commissioner Walker. And there are some interesting points that come out around the science and how the Murray-Darling Basin Authority was coming or arriving at with their modelling certain figures and how we've ended up with one of those figures, the 2750 figure in particular, do you mind sharing with us that story and what you learned in the Royal Commission through that work you were doing with Commissioner Walker? Sure. I think the, the three the three most shocking things I learned with these, and, and Australians, we've talked about how, how many of us live in the city and how many of us don't know about this. We should all be, be outraged by the things I meant to say, not, not only because of what the maladministration and worse that occurred, but because water is such a precious thing in our country. I don't think we realise it's it's far more precious to us than than coal and iron ore. But but the, the first thing was we, we had sworn evidence given by one former employee of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and other people told us this that weren't prepared to get in the witness box because they're still employed within the Commonwealth Public Service and we didn't want to cost them their jobs. But Essentially, one witness said, "With the we talked about the figures, 4,000 to 7,000 billion litres a year. When that figure was being whittled down to the 2,750 gigalitre figure, he gave evidence that no one within the MDBA, including its scientists, thought that that was actually a lawful science-based figure. And it became a running joke that it was, in effect, may as well have been based on a postcode. That is a New South Wales postcode, 2750 being the postcode of Penrith as distinct from what it needed to be uh, based on a at least a Queensland postcode, if not a South Australian postcode or higher again. In other words, this 2000 figure was called a, a postcode fixed, is what Walker described it as, rather than being anything to do with science. So that, that's the first very disturbing thing. The second disturbing thing is, as I said, we had a report from the CSIRO. They were asked to do a report by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority before the Basin Plan was legislated as to what would be the benefits of a 2,750 gigalitre plan, that is a return of water to the environment on average of, it was actually 2,800 gigalitres a year. They produced a report that said for many parts of the environment, a 2,800 gigalitre plan won't do much good. The Murray-Darling Basin Authority was very upset with that report and management from the MDBA pressured management, not scientists, but management within the CSIRO to change the wording in that report to a degree that the author of the key section of this report who gave sworn evidence, who's now left the CSIRO, said amounted to scientific censorship. He'd kept the draft report, he'd kept his diary notes. The fact that 
this management of CSIRO caved in and changed this report in significant ways to make it look as though a 2800 gigalitre plan would be better for the environment than the scientists of the CSIRO actually thought it would cause such unrest within the CSIRO. They had to call in a facilitator to deal with staff unrest. One of the reasons this scientist who, who's now at ANU uh, who gave sworn evidence, one of the reasons he was given as to why the CSIRO was caving in to the Basin Authority was that they were concerned that the Basin Authority wouldn't pay the CSIRO for the report unless they changed it in the manner that was required. So, again, I think all Australians should be really outraged that our leading scientific organisation, the CSIRO, gets heavy by another federal agency to change a science report to the extent that the main author of the key chapter calls it scientific censorship. So I found that utterly disgusting and beyond my comprehension how it could even happen. And I think the third really outrageous thing is that when the Basin Plan was being put together, the CSIRO gave advice to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority saying, whatever you do, you've got to incorporate climate change projections into this plan. If you don't, it'll essentially be a joke. This is a plan for the future. It's going to get hotter and drier. You've got to put our climate change projections into your modelling And the MDBA, knowing that would mean more water has to go to the environment, refused to do that. CSIRO said, if you don't do it, it's, quote, scientifically indefensible, close quote, which is what Walker also found. But the MDBA just ignored that. Again, I think it's incredible when you're talking about the use of taxpayers' funds and you have our leading scientific organisation, federal scientific organisation, the CSIRO, giving science advice to another federal authority saying, you have to do this or it'll be scientifically indefensible. And that other federal agency refusing to do that, I can't believe that that could be allowed to happen, but it has. So the Basin Plan has no climate change projections built into it at all, which is frankly a disgrace and was totally against the advice of the CSIRO, who, as I said, described this approach as scientifically indefensible. Walker described it as the same thing in his Royal Commission. He also described it as gross negligence and incomprehensible decision-making, which is what it is. Well, it does take place, um, that situation with the CSIRO, amongst a backdrop of ongoing and constant substantial funding cuts, such as in 2014, the Abbott government's $110 million funding cut, with about 1,400 staff lost there. Sure. For the climate change chapter in in Brett Walker's Royal Commission report, we called evidence from several of Australia's leading climate change experts experts, um, Professor Andy Pittman from the University of New South Wales and uh, Professor Mark Halden from ANU. And they both essentially said that, look, it's not so much money for research into climate change anymore. The the world's doing that research. The the, the science of climate change is is pretty settled in, in terms of what the range of likely outcomes are depending on what we do in terms of emission reductions. But what as they described, what we shredded, that's their word, shredded, after Abbott was elected, was our, our research into climate change adaptation. And, and that gets back to the point I made before about whether or not we have a basin plan. Our governments have got to do something to assist regional and rural Australia um, adapt to a certain future of less water uh, because that's coming whether or not we have a basin plan. And yet... It's the people that are 
that are largely driving the ideological wars about climate change are the ones that, of course, shred the adaptation research. For some reason, and this is probably beyond the scope of this interview, people in regional rural Australia who have most at stake over this keep voting for people that don't believe in climate change and don't believe in funding climate change adaptation research. Why that happens, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, that is what it is. Yeah, it's uh, inexplicable in some ways. And one topic I wanted to conclude this conversation with was uh, about something that has really been, I guess, sticking out in my mind, and you're probably the right one to ask, thinking about the fact that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority did respond to the Royal Commission and Commissioner Brett Walker's findings, and they were suggesting that it was really just a difference of interpretation or legal opinion around how the Water Act could be and should be applied. I wonder if it is so clear and obvious that it's the the environment first in this Water Act, are there modes or avenues of legal recourse to actually make invalid or prove that um, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is unlawful and needs to be changed to actually fit the law that it's seeking to serve? There might be. I'll come to that. But first thing, that comment by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority that it was just a difference of opinion was an outrageous comment. Brett Walker did say in his Royal Commission report that he he disagreed with the way that the Basin Authority had interpreted the Water Act, disagreed as a matter of statutory construction. That was one part. That, that He's right, for example. When there's a difference of opinion, yes, there can be difference of opinion, but, but the real question is who's right. But that was a difference of legal opinion. Putting that aside, Walker, however made findings that weren't based on statutory construction. They were just based on pure and simple facts. The fact that I mentioned to you before that the Basin Plan was clearly based on a political fix and not science. That's got nothing to do with statutory construction or a different opinion. That's a fact. Um, It's not a difference of opinion that climate change projections weren't put in the Basin Plan, which has to be best available science. And if you don't put that in, the Basin Plan's unlawful. None of these things were about difference of opinions. They were about making findings of fact, which is what royal commissioners do. They look into the facts and they make findings about what the truth of something is. So Walker made findings about what the truth of something is, not about the difference of an opinion. Coming back to your first point, that your other point, though, about whether you could challenge the Basin Plan, the Basin Plan is federal legislation which... Uh, it's not primary legislation, but that might make it a difficult issue as to whether it's justiciable about whether you can challenge it as an invalid decision. But um, it could be challenged on the basis that it's unconstitutional because its constitutional validity depends on using the foreign affairs power in our federal constitution. That is, the Basin Plan is is said to be one that has to faithfully fulfil Australia's international environmental treaty obligations under the Ramsar Treaty for Wetlands under the Biodiversity Convention, under the Climate Change Agreement, etc., under a number of migratory bird international agreements we have with other countries. So there might be an ability to challenge the Basin Plan as unconstitutional, but where would that get you? Even if you succeeded, that would end up with invalidating the Basin Plan. We'd still have the Water Act that requires the Basin Plan to be drafted, so I guess they'd have to start again. Even though I'm a lawyer, I'm not a great advocate necessarily for finding a court-based solution. I'd like people to just do the right thing. 
the right thing is to, to actually either make it lawful and put science first, however difficult that might be, but make it an environment first basin plan, which will mean a lot more water will have to go back to the environment or do the other honest thing and change the Water Act so that it's not an environment first law. And then you can have a different sort of basin plan, which is one where it's a, a bigger form of compromise between environmental outcomes and economic outcomes. But either way, it should be honest. It is very hard and a big decision to try and challenge the the validity of the basin plan and go to court. And as I said, as a citizen, forgetting myself as a lawyer at the moment, as a citizen, it's not what I think would be the best outcome. That is, it wouldn't be the best outcome to have a court challenge over this. It'd be the best outcome to be honest and do it properly and either do it according to science or change the Water Act and not do it according to science. To conclude where we started, you said that this should be a bipartisan issue, something that we can all agree on. Do you think or are there indications that a Labor government, should they be elected at the next election, would act in any kind of way that is different and is recognising the environment first aspects of the Water Act? Well, uh, one area where Labor now has differentiated itself from the government is that the the Labor Party has said that they would, for whatever water is left needed to be gained for the environment under the Basin Plan, they have said they would buy that water rather than trying to recover it through other means such as so-called efficiency measures. That's a really good idea because buying water entitlements, we're talking about obviously voluntary sales, not compulsory Mm. acquisitions, Buying water for the environment, A, is more a certain, more certain way of getting water into the system, but B, is at least three times probably more cheaper to taxpayers than schemes and efficiency schemes to recover water. Not that we shouldn't use water efficiently, but buying water is a much more certain and cheaper means to get water back in the system. So that's a good thing. I would hope, and this is, is only a hope, but I would hope that if Labor got in in federal government, they would actually take Walker's Royal Commission off the shelf it's being put on, covered in dust, open it up and take a serious look at his findings of fact and at his recommendations and implement them. Whether they'll do that or not, I have no idea. There'll be a lot of pressure on them not to do it, but buying water would be a good start to recover the rest of what's required under the basin plan instead of schemes that probably don't work and cost all Australians a lot of money, including, for example, taxpayers in Perth that don't have much skin in the game for the southeastern Australia. But I would hope that they would at least have it either a serious look at Walker's Royal Commission or set up a federal Royal Commission because one of the things that Walker was deprived of because he was taken to the High Court and not given enough time for that case to be resolved, Walker issued summonses to federal employees, including past and present members of the MDBA. Uh, He was going to issue summonses to employees of the Department of Agriculture and Water. He was seeking documents from these organisations, etc. And the cooperation he got from the federal government for that was, uh, stuff you, we're taking you to the High Court, we don't think you've got power to do this. Obviously, if there was a federal-based Royal Commission, those sorts of people, if they were summoned to be examined, as they should be, uh, that could occur. So that, that would be another thing that, that Labor could look at as well. 
Thank you so much, Richard. It's just been absolutely fascinating and obviously really compelling to read this and to get angry about it as well. The book is called Dead in the Water, a very angry book about our greatest environmental catastrophe, the death of the Murray-Darling Basin. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's so great to be with you. Thanks to those who are listening for the full three hours, whether it is as we speak or listening back on On Demand or the podcast. It's great to be with you. It's also great to be joined by someone who I've had on the program a few times now. Her name is uh, Professor Michelle Arrow. Michelle is a historian based at Macquarie University and she wrote a fantastic book, an award-winning book, um, called The 70s, which I originally spoke to her about a couple of years ago. And absolutely, I recommend that book. It certainly is um, such an engaging read and really brings up a lot about uh, the 70s that even people I know who lived through the 70s didn't remember or weren't quite aware of. So um, it's really wonderful to chat with Michelle about something that is so critical to history, um, Australia's history and beyond, because, of course, our National Archives do hold documents that are relevant for other researchers as well. Michelle has written a couple of pieces, one for the conversation called Our History Up in Flames, Why the Crisis at the National Archives Must Be Urgently Addressed, and she also wrote an op-ed for the Sydney Morning Herald about the same topic, which is essentially that Australia's national archival treasures are on the brink of destruction. Um, So I welcome Michelle now. Thank you so much for joining us again, Michelle. It's my pleasure, Amy. Thank you for having me. Well, it's uh, really always a pleasure to talk history with you because I get to nerd out about it um, with you, which I know we've done before, and we certainly did in our first chat about the 70s. And one of those, um, I guess, elements of the nerd out, which was great, was to hear about your experiences delving into archives because that is and did form a great portion of your book and the research for your book, um, particularly uh, a Royal Commission on Human Relationships, which really brought up some fascinating experiences of Australians in, uh, I guess, a quite an interesting time period. So I wanted to ask first up to set the scene, um, given you're a practising historian and an academic historian, what do you do and how do you utilise archives and, in particular, Australia's National Archives? Mm. Look, I've used the National Archives for my work really for quite a long time. One of the first things I ever read in the National Archives, I worked on my first book was a history of women playwrights in mid-20th century Australia. And for that, I needed the National Archives for two reasons. One, to look at the records of the ABC, of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, because a lot of women in 
in the 30s and 40s were writing scripts for the ABC radio and screenplays. And one of the things that they have in the National Archives is things like women writing about how much they were being paid, you know, and how much they felt they should be paid for the work that they were doing and, and kind of reading the scripts and reading that kind of material. So the National Archives houses the, the ABC's documentary archive. But one of the other things they held which um, was kind of fascinating was the ASIO files on a number of the writers that I was working on. So some of these women were members of the Communist Party, um, so their uh, ASIO files were often quite thick. They were heavily redacted, so all of the agents' names had been removed, but you could read you know, results and records of phone taps that had uh, women had been um, subjected to. You could read, you know, theatre reviews, basically, that the ASIO agents would write about the pieces that they'd seen. Um, so it was kind of... And I've always uh, used the National Archives a lot for my work because they are incredibly rich um, resources. And, I, and, and as I keep saying to people that, you know, we think of the National Archives as the records of the Commonwealth Government and its agencies, and that sounds kind of dry. But actually one of the richest things about the National Archives is that it contains a lot of material that is about ordinary people. It is the records that ordinary people have left, um, you know, because of their interactions with the Commonwealth Government. And so the work of my most recent book about um, the 1970s and really told through the records of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships, which was an initiative of the Whitlam government in the mid-1970s in Australia, is that that Royal Commission was explicitly about inviting the public in to contribute. You know, they put posters and, and radio ads out saying, what do you think about, you know, the family, social, sexual, legal, uh, medical aspects of male and female relationships? So this very broad remit. And people wrote in, people phoned in. Um, and all of that material is carefully collected and housed in the National Archives of Australia. So when, you know, and historians have sort of known, I guess, about this issue around the National Archives for a long time, but it's one of the things where when I realised that, you know, the sense of the urgency of this question, what what's at stake here, that it, it moved me to kind of write about it publicly because I think people should know more about what is in the National Archives. And probably if there are family historians listening, they'll have used the National Archives because it, it collects um, a lot of information about military service, um, immigration and naturalisation records, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, there's something that relates to almost every person in Australia housed in that archive. So it's a very, very important archival resource for Australians. Yeah, it's uh, as you say, it's certainly not dry. Um, of course, I'm sure there are some dry things there <laughs> by necessity, but um, the kind of joy of doing history and being a historian or even just being a family history researcher is that you uncover just some absolute gems of information. Um, it just feels like you're on a treasure hunt and you discover this you know, magic treasure that um, gives you some kind of new insight and uh, a new understanding of something that you didn't have before so it is so special yes and unique you know I mean the thing yeah. about National Archives is that it holds records that are unique to that repository that they're not held anywhere else um, most of the material is not published somewhere else so it really is a set of unique um, records that are not held anywhere else and that's really why it's such an important um, it's an important plays an important role not just for researchers but it's actually an important democratic institution if you think about the National Archives it contains the records of government decision making and it's important for our trust in government for our understanding of the kind of system of checks and balances to be able to as citizens 
ask to see the documents that record government decision making. You know, that's a really important part of democracy and, and transparency and access. So, you know, there are, yes, it's a it's an important institution for historians and people who are interested in the past, but it's also an institution that I think is, is of re- relevance to all of us. Mm. Well, it absolutely is relevant and it does remind me of a, a recent tragedy which was um, the fires at the University of Cape Town in South Africa uh, where really so many rare and special collections that were only held there, historical records, were damaged and pretty much a lot of them destroyed um, by this fire at the Jagger Library there in um, Cape Town. So it really certainly brought home for a number of, I know, historians and archivists on Twitter when I was following that that issue and conversation that, um, you know, these are things that we can't get back and that will be lost to South Africa's history. And that, in that sense, was, I guess, a disaster caused by fire. But in our situation, it is entirely preventable. Yes, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, for me, the image of the, of the archive literally on fire was kind of a really evocative metaphor in some ways obviously it's a terrible tragedy as well I don't want to kind of just say it's only a metaphor but I I was really struck by the fact that if we if someone went into the National Archives and set a fire on purpose we would be horrified and you know that would be a a terrible tragedy and it would be a crime Um, what we're doing I think you know through you know we as in the public that a government by neglect is kind of effectively the same thing we are kind of allowing this material to degrade and to be destroyed before we can capture it on more secure digital formats um and it's if if action is not taken it is going to go it is like we've set it on fire so it is um there is some urgency in this question it's there is a a kind of looming digital cliff that archivists around the world talk about the idea that if, if material that is captured on these formats is not converted to more secure formats by 2025, it will it will kind of loom over the digital cliff and it will be destroyed. Exactly. And it is um, concerning because of these various formats. And I wondered if you could take us through, um, for those maybe who are part of the new generation and weren't around when these formats were around. Um, What are some of, I guess, the range of uh, outdated or outmoded formats that these um, treasures and documents and sound recordings and um, films are actually recorded on? Yeah, so there's lots of different... Uh, you know, redundant formats that are no longer used. If you think about the mass media age of the 20th century, you think about how many new forms of mass media and recording, audio recording or visual recording that have emerged. So we have cinema, we then had radio, we then had television. We had a number of different ways that television programs were recorded. You know, initially they were sort of um, they weren't they, the recordings were just simply recorded over and, and they disappeared that way. Um, you know, we've then had things that have been captured on cassette tape and VHS, and then finally, obviously, the, the sort of move to digital formats. So a lot of the issues relate to kind of the fragility of those recordings themselves. So film, certain kinds of old film has a, a it's a process known as vinegaring, where it kind of it, it emits this sort of vinegary smell, and then it kind of is vulnerable just to, to dissolving, shattering. You know, so. So there, are, there is the fact where the, the actual recording 
you know, the, the film strips are kind of degrading because they're never meant to last, you know, more than 100 years or so, which is what we've sort of expected them to. We then have the problem too that certain formats are no longer, the, the equipment no longer exists or it is no longer able to be maintained to play them on. Um, the analogy I used in my piece for the for the nine papers was the VCR. You know, I don't know about mm. you. I was old enough that I used to tape things off the television when I yes. was watching documentaries or, you know, um, f- films and, and, you know, we would watch them over and over again. And after a while, you know, the, the recording starts to get a bit snowy and the, you know, recording was not of great quality in the first place. You would be taping over things all the time. And then we all got DVD players eventually and those boxes of VCR cassettes that you had, you couldn't, couldn't really play them anymore. They were basically just, you know, um, junk because mm. nobody had a VCR to play them. So that's also part of the problem here is that things are kind of captured on what were secure formats at the time, like cassette tapes and and, um, and VHS. But I don't know if you've ever tried to play an old cassette tape when it's kind of in a situation where it's it's not kind of aged so well. You know, they get caught, they, you know, the thing gets wound up. Um, you know, this is the problem, basically, that there's a combination of the deterioration of the original recordings, the lack of equipment to play them on, and the fact that they are just kind of degrading over time and really need to be preserved in a more secure digitized format and once they're digitized they can be stored on the cloud you know they are there in a in a you know preservation format they they can be accessed again by other researchers but at the moment one of the things that the archives will do is if you do request a program you would like to view a, a piece of film or whatever um Often you have a delay, you might have to pay some money to access that recording, but they will make a digital copy for you, but it's kind of on demand. So things will get digitised in a sort of haphazard kind of way. But, of course, that's not systematic. That will leave a lot of things behind. And so the urgency is also about making sure that not just little bits of the collection are digitised, but that all the things that are at risk are digitised in a timely way before they fall off the digital cliff. Yeah. Well, um, two things to that. Yes, I can relate to that because um, (laughs) even the university library holds some VHS videos and you quite literally have to go to the library to use their VHS player um, and hope that it, you know, is still working. Yes. Um, And similarly, I absolutely have destroyed uh, accidentally cassette tapes by putting it in a player that is no longer working but was working last time I used it. So um, this is really very realistic concerns that you have raised because they've happened to me and no doubt to many (laughs) others listening. Um, And I'm sure historians and archivists probably have are a bit scarred by some oh, yeah. um, experiences well, they might have had. <laughs> it's even things like when you think about your own life and how it's documented, you know. Yeah. We all have photo albums and now we look at the photos and they're, they're sticking to the pages and you can't peel the photos off or yeah. filmed home movies of your wedding or something like that and then, oh, wait a minute, we don't have that in a, in a CD anymore so we don't, you know, like people, there is a small business in, in kind of industry and in kind of converting things to digital, but that is not going to, you know, solve this problem. It, it is sort of a problem that affects all of us, but, you know, the National Archives needs a significant amount of funding to, in order to, to sort of perform this properly. Mm. And you mentioned there that there's kind of been this general understanding of a hundred year limit on the status or preservation and condition of certain objects and documents um, and the fact that, you know, they really degrade to a point that they aren't usable anymore at 
varying points. I'm sure 100 years isn't a kind of magic cut off for some things quite true but yes it is there would be a set there is a set time period that which most of it will will no longer be a function after yeah yeah and that's and you did um mention that date that year is coming up you know pretty quickly like we've got here till 2025 um to digitize a lot of records of a varying um, kind in terms of the formats that you've mentioned that they feature on. Um, And this is something, I guess, which is a challenge, not just because of the scale in terms of the number of documents and audio recordings and video recordings, et cetera, but also the fact that funding has been cut significantly to our national institutions, the National Archives of Australia, for example, but also the National Library of Australia, the National Gallery of Australia, the National Film and Sound Archives of Australia. So this is something that I know a number of institutions have felt ongoing pressure and have had to essentially cut staff um, over recent years in order to try and survive and to still try and carry out its mission. But it seems that its mission is becoming, um, I guess, being undermined by budget cuts. Um, I wondered whether you could share with us the, the reality in terms of the scale of the documents and the scale of the task, but also the funding that's needed for that. Yeah, so I think the funding really for me is is sort of it's a really core part of this problem because, you know, it's interesting that I don't think archives and, and cultural institutions have necessarily been front of mind for politicians of either side um, for quite a long time. So from 1987, the national cultural institutions, and, and you listed them there, and they include the War Memorial as well, but I'll get to how the War Memorial has been impacted on this slightly differently. So all of those national cultural institutions from 1987, which is a Labor government, had to um, give up what was called an efficiency dividend every year. So it, what this effectively meant is that every year their funding from government was reduced just a little. Um, and the idea was behind an efficiency dividend was to encourage Efficiency. It was designed to encourage these cultural institutions to be innovative in their approaches, to maybe seek funding from other places, to kind of, you know, develop, drive savings and efficiency. And in some ways, you know, that's a worthy and admirable goal. But there was an inquiry into the National Cultural Institutions that was undertaken by a Senate committee in 2019 that found that over, particularly over the last 10 years, that the cumulative effect of that efficiency dividend has really started to erode the core functions of these institutions. And it's important to note that in 2015-16, the um, Liberal government under Turnbull, Prime Minister Turnbull, imposed an additional 3% uh, cut on, on the budgets of all the national cultural institutions, with the exception of the Australian War Memorial. So you can see that over time, yeah, for a while you can find efficiencies. Yes, things can be done in different ways. You know, you can find some sponsorship or philanthropic funding. But really over the last, particularly over the last 10 years and the last five years in particular, this drive for efficiency has really meant that there's no more efficiencies to be found, right, that they're actually having to cut staff. I can give you one tiny example from the National Archives. They used to run um, a series of fellowships for emerging and mid-career researchers. Now, these are not a huge amount of money, but they're career-changing for the academics who have them, for the researchers who undertake them. So they were the mid-career one was $15,000 and the early career one was $3,000 for a researcher to have, you know, open access to the collections for a set period of time. They had to cut those in about 20 
2014, I think, was the last time they've issued those. So you can just see that in that one example, something that is a good for the archives, it gets researchers into the collection, it enables them to speak about their research in the public. I had one of those fellowships a few years before they um, before they got rid of them, but they no longer can do that stuff. But more seriously, it has really impacted on the staffing at these institutions. I think the National Archives has less staff uh, now than they did in 2014, like significantly fewer staff. Um, they've had to cut, you know, the, the round of funding that um, was cut over the 2015-16 period resulted in a lot of redundancies. And, of course, with start, without the staff, without those human resources, you lose expert um, expertise over the collection, but you also lose the people who can deal with the request to see material and who can digitise that material. So not only is the archive struggling with the money to actually undertake this task, a lot of that is about having the staff on the ground who can do this work in an urgent and timely way. Mm. Well, you also mentioned in your piece the Tune Review into mm. the National Archives, which was released uh, in March this year and recommended that the federal government fund a program to urgently digitise at-risk materials that would cost around $67.7 million. And in that piece, you do make a comparison to the funding that's been apportioned to the Australian War Memorial recently. I wonder if you could expand on that. Yes, yeah, so the Tune Review was designed to uh, investigate the kind of efficiency and the function of the National Archives because there have been questions raised about the, the way the archives has, uh, you know, the way it delivers its mission. You know, re researchers are reporting very long delays in accessing material and we can talk perhaps a bit more about some of those other issues with the archives shortly. But yeah. one of the things that the Tune Review did recommend um, was that the government urgently give an upgrade of funding uh, of, a, as you said, six. $67.7 million in order to save the most at-risk material, and that would include almost all of the, you know, at-risk audiovisual material. Um, so when you think about the fact that the government, the only increased money to the National Cultural Institutions that's been provided in the last few years is $500 million to the Australian War Memorial to demolish Anzac Hall and build a new extension to the War Memorial, um, the $67 million is, is a of what that would cost, you know, and, and my suggestion would be that, you know, the War Memorial could still have a very nice extension if it wants one uh, for $430 you know, million instead of uh, $500 million and, and it could save... Because, after all, a lot of um, the records that the National Archives hold are military service records. Mm. They're actually records that relate to Australia's history of war and, uh, you know, it's really important that those get retained as well. So it is um, striking, I think, that, you know, the, the pattern of funding has been to underfund all of the other institutions that deal with almost every other aspect of Australia's history and heritage, but the War Memorial has been exempt from that additional 3% funding cut um, imposed in 2016, and they've actually been given a large amount of new funding. Um, now, the National Archives did get some money because it needed a new building or needed to renovate its building, but it certainly didn't get the money that it needed to do this, this urgent digitisation work, which seems to me to be uh, important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, having a functioning building seems yeah. like a minimum thing that a yeah. government should fund, not kind of a, a bonus exactly. round of funding. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things that it, it's really striking about this is that it can't, you know, one of the, the ways the National Archives has tried to find efficiencies, I suppose, and make money is through user pays kind of digitisation. Um, so, for example, if you apply to the National Archives to look at a file of records, a file of documents, um, and you can't make it to an archives branch because they're all, you know, they're housed in every state, you can ask to have it digitised, make a copy. And that, that's kind of basically um, user pays digitisation because you pay to have the digital copy made and then that copy becomes available on the archives, on the website so anyone else can access it. But they've increased the fees for that digitisation by I think three or four times. So it's now really expensive for individual researchers to obtain a copy of a file. I, I asked for one to be made last year and it was one folder of documents and it cost me about $250. So, you know, it's just not feasible for most people to spend that much money. So, again, this drive to kind of try and recover money from users is really not going to save the archives. It needs government money. It needs an injection of money, for, of taxpayers' funding from the federal government. Well, that is a really critical point that you raise about accessibility um, because, and it is, you know, obviously relevant to the digital conversation mm -hmm. as well um, because really the cost obviously precludes a number of people who don't have institutional backing mm -hmm. and even those who have institutional backing don't have massive budgets at no. the moment. So um, that's a, obviously a challenge. Another challenge is um, you've mentioned, you know, travel and a pandemic that we've been in. So many people haven't actually been able to go physically yeah. to archives to actually sit there and go through it. Um, another one of those practical elements is you don't know what's in the folder completely yeah. until you get the folder. Oh. You've kind of got this top line idea, but you don't really know if it's completely relevant to your um, your field or your inquiry. So that's another issue. Absolutely. It's archival gambling. You're like, yeah. I'm going to lay Literally. my money down, but is this thing going to be worth it? You know, you don't yeah. until you get it. Um, so, yeah, all of those things are really important. And I think it's important too to note that, you know, the archives has come under some criticism in recent years for its kind of overly cautious approach to dealing with access requests. And I think a lot of historians are concerned about this, that, um, I mean, uh, you can apply to see materials and particularly... Um, portfolios like foreign affairs, um, you know, what happens is the archive sends the request back to the department that has created the file in the first place. And often those files can just sit there on a desk in Department of Foreign Affairs or wherever for months or even years while the kind of request is sort of slowly processed. So it's not timely and it's not very fast and it's not very transparent in terms of who gets to see what. So often researchers who might want to write a history that, you know, relates to foreign affairs or, um, do, you know, defence or um, intelligence portfolios, they basically can't do it because it can take, you know, years to get the file released um, and also the issue is that uh, you know with the palace letters case with Jenny Hocking's um, you know attempt to access those letters from between Sir John Kerr and Buckingham Palace the National Archives spent about a million dollars trying to prevent her from seeing those records and of course they lost that case right up to the High Court 
you know, a lot of people have raised questions about was that really the best way for the archives to, to use its precious resources in a time when they really don't have a lot of money. So I think that's important to note that there are some questions, valid questions, about how the archives conducts itself in relation to um, dealing with requests from researchers. But I think, on the other hand, both things can be true. There can be those issues, but also the archives is really underfunded and needs desperately needs an injection of funding in order to perform those crucial digitisation functions. Yeah, I'm glad you brought the the palace letters up because um, I did ask that question of Jenny Hocking um, when they had just uh, she had won the case and the yeah. National Archives had lost, and she similarly had that kind of criticism of the archives in the sense of you know it was particularly futile um, and could have been used you know to preserve our history. Um, so hopefully you know things do change, but it does seem that there is um, this tentative kind of culture of trying to be ultra cautious and careful and perhaps in some cases that is relevant but also you know time has moved on in a lot of these cases and it potentially isn't that relevant to redact a whole load of documents from you know 60 years ago so um this is something which, yeah, is obviously a, an important part that we should debate really about, you know, what's happening and we should be um, having, an, I guess, an open critique so that we do get an improvement for and transparency for historians and for anyone interested in the public record on certain topics. Um, Michelle, to close out this conversation, if the National Archives doesn't get adequate funding in the next budget, the next federal budget, which is being handed down this coming Tuesday, not today, but next week. Um, what, I mean, what would happen to the archives? And I guess I'm asking also who would decide what mm. is prioritised for digitisation in terms of how does anyone, I guess, make that decision of what, you know, will leave and get let just be destroyed potentially um, and which ones we will choose to prioritise. Are there values or principles that are going to inform someone in, the, in that decision-making process? That's a really good question. And to be honest, I'm not 100% certain about that. But one thing I do know is that one of the, the possible approaches might be is that some materials, so, for example, material that relates to Indigenous collections may well be um, IATSIS, which collects a lot of Indigenous um, cultural heritage and historical materials, may be asked whether they would like to, you know, take over preservation of that material or things like that. So the National Film and Sound Archive could well be asked if they would want to contribute in that way as well for other kinds of material. Um there are rules about, you know, there are kind of guidelines about what gets preserved and what doesn't. And I wonder, I think that the, my understanding is that it will be trying to prioritise uh, Indigenous material. Um, that was one area of, of priority, I think, um, that there are other issues around particularly um, fragile um older material, you know, that, that really is, you know, it'll be prioritised in, in kind of order of, of most urgent need. Um, but it is a kind of open question, I think, about how the archive will make those decisions, in fact. And I think it probably would be, I mean, in, in some ways making the open call for, you know, with the approaching the Sydney Morning Herald or kind of raising the issue in the media and kind of saying, look, these are all the questions that we need to, these are all the materials that are at risk. I think that's partly about a way of saying these are the things that we will prioritise if, if we don't 
you know, we don't get the funding. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think it's a really important and open question as to how the archives will make those que- make those decisions, and that's perhaps something that they might like to ask the federal government for guidance on. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully some senators can ask it in uh, Senate estimates as well. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really important point too that, you know, the one thing I think that's been good about this is that it has raised an issue that, you know, a lot of historians have known about for a while, but it's great to see it getting a bit more, um, you know, kind of front and centre media coverage. Yeah. Michelle, it's been so, so valuable to talk with you about this topic in some depth and to prioritise it for our national conversation and keep it in our minds for when we see the federal budget delivered next week. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, but also to advocate on this issue in your own time as well. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.